This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook undoubtedly has some of the top designers in the world working all under one roof. But what does it take to be a designer there? I asked Tori Hargrove to find out. Um, you just have to have grit. You have to roll up your sl- sleeves and be willing to work through really tough, thorny challenges. And if you have that attitude where you can, um, where you know it's possible for you to get through a problem, you're going to be successful at Facebook. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. Lots of jobs this week. So RevUnit is looking for a senior UX and UI designer. MailChimp is looking for a product designer. Dev Bootcamp is looking for a senior software developer instructor, as well as a lead engineer. HyperAct is looking for a brand strategist. Bandcamp is looking for a designer. And the New York Times is looking for a freelance product designer. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts when there are new positions added to the job board. You'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. And if you're looking for even more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Join more than 15 million people who use MailChimp to not only send emails, but to grow their businesses on their own terms. Start sending professional-looking newsletters to your clients today for absolutely free. By the way, have you seen their new marketing campaign, the one with uh, Mail Shrimp, Kale Limp, Jail Blimp? I was actually at MailChimp's headquarters last week, and they have actual bags of failed chips, which I think should kind of be a real product. Anyway, MailChimp makes email marketing so much fun, makes it so easy. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can see the campaign, but if you want to sign up for MailChimp, head on over to MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea for a project, you need to give it a great domain name. And guess what? Finding the perfect domain is ridiculously easy with Hover. Hover has over 400 domain extensions, including the classics like .com or .net, They've got niche extensions like .design or .tech. They even have quirky extensions like .pizza, .ninja, and .horse. Once you find your domain, you can use Hover Connect to set up your domain with your website in just a few clicks. Find a domain name for your idea. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that URL is hover.com forward slash revision path. Hover, domain names for your ideas. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for personal, business, or enterprise projects. Whether you're building something custom or you're using a CMS like WordPress, SiteGround lets you build better, faster, safer websites more easily, and they offer multiple hosting options that your websites can grow into. And we've got a fantastic deal for you from SiteGround. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path and you can get 60% off on all hosting plans. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Areem Anthony, Product Design Manager at Airbnb. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Areem Anthony. I am a Production Design Manager at Airbnb in San Francisco. So I'm interested, of course, to know what it's like working at Airbnb, but to kind of take it, you know, a little bit back, what exactly is production design? So my definition of production design is it's very depending on what industry you're in. So my production design experience started with pre-press and print. 
working like with Quark and Illustrator, Photoshop, working in a print house. So my job mostly was getting files ready to go to the RIP, to SciTex, to printers, that type of thing. So production really is the person in between the designs and or the designer and between the final product. So currently my role as a production designer is production designers are in between the designers. Mostly I'm in product. So it's mostly UX UI designers who will comp something up, whether it be Illustrator, Photoshop, or Sketch. They give it to the production design team. And then we generate the final pixel perfect assets to the engineers to put into the app or into the website. So that's just a really quick and dirty explanation of production design. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I'm thinking about jobs where I've had, where I've been on either side where I've been the designer or the person that's yeah. kind of coding it out. I, I never knew that there was this intermediary between yeah. design and the development part. And it's actually a natural progression of any type of design workflow that has to scale. Because when you look at it, you're in one mindset when you're designing, when you're comping, it could do this, it can do this, it can do this. Yeah. You're in a whole nother mindset when it's like, let me get these ready to go to press or get these ready for engineering or ready for the website. You got to talk about what format, TIFF, JPEG, PNG, you talk about color space, you got to talk about size, kilobytes. That is a whole nother mindset. So when you have one designer or freelancer who's doing all this job, you're jack of all trades, you're used to it. But as soon as you start going like to 12 designers in an organization, 20 designers, 70 designers, you need to have a team that is focused on nothing but making everything pixel perfect. So not a, a lot of designers don't know what production designers are because we've hired designers who are like, I never work with production design. So we have to educate them. This is how you use us. This is where we excel. So we kind of educate designers that we are an asset for you. We're going to let you do the higher level thinking, and we're going to do all of that perfection that needs to be done before it gets handed over to engineering. That is really handy. Oh, you have <laughs> no idea. That is really handy. I just think of, of past jobs that I've had where I've been – actually, I was, before I started my uh, my studio eight years ago, I was a, a senior web designer at AT&T. But it's sort of – I don't know if I would even call it a production designer. I mean, we did everything from – we took the, the raw data that we needed from the client and we had to mock it up, design it, code it out. And yep. ship it usually within the span of a few hours. Yep. And so, when you do that from receiving everything to final asset, you're really a producer. You're really like a content developer. You know, you're going beyond being a designer. Yeah. Wow. I, I think more businesses need to have that kind of intermediary step. I think that would save a lot of brain drain from designers because I know there's always this talk about, well, should designers code and should developers design yeah. and this kind of thing. Yeah. But having that production designer in the middle lets the designers design, lets the developers develop and code. Yeah. And it's essential when you scale, you need to go faster and bigger and stronger. How long have you been the uh, production design manager at Airbnb? I want to say about a year. It might have been a little less, but it's been recent. And how's it been so far? I'm only hesitating because I don't want to sound like it's it's really been great for me because I also have a different definition of what a manager is because I've always thought in my career, oh, one day I'll be a manager, then I'll be a creative director, then I'll be running the place, I'll be a VP of design. And I never liked that term or that feeling of I'm going to be a manager and I'm going to be, you know, you do what I say. But someone I met at Facebook gave me a really good definition of a manager was a manager is just someone who enables people and gets things out of their way to do their best work. And I'm like, oh, okay, I would love to be a manager. I would love to say, let me identify the problems that you have or obstacles you have, get them out of your way so you can do your best work. Then I would love to be a manager. And that changed my whole scope on being a manager. I like that idea too. When I think of managers I've had in the past, if anything, they were the obstacle. They yes. were the thing getting in the way of, of having things done. So yep. being able to take those obstacles away is really helpful. I guess aside from that you know, definition that you just said, how has the position kind of stretched you as a designer? I think for me, it's let me focus on more QA and quality. Because for me, I tend to have tunnel vision when I'm working. So if I'm doing like, let's just give an example. If I'm doing screens or icons, whatever it is, and you're doing something for days and hours and days and hours, and then you deliver something... There could be glaring mistakes that you don't see anymore because you've been looking at it for days. You do multiple languages, you do multiple platforms. Mm -hmm. So for me, being able to be a manager and come a little bit out of the IC work and being able to say, okay, you guys do a lot of this work and let me review it. I can spot things very, very well. 
Mm-hmm. But it's if I do them and I'm in it for a long time, I get blindness and I don't see things. So me coming out of that IC role and being a manager has helped me strengthen my QA and, and, and quality eyes. Walk me through a typical day at Airbnb. What's it like for you? First, there's no typical day. <laughs> Second, and this is just to be completely honest, and I just I'll preface this. Everything that I'm going to answer, everything I'm going to say is honestly true 100%. I can't be any other way. For me, in my 25-year career, this has been the best place I've ever worked. Not because Airbnb is popular, not because we're one of the biggest, not because we're one of these Silicon Valley darlings, but Airbnb has a mission that has a moral factor to it where I've worked at Netflix, I've worked at Ikea, I've worked at Apple, I've worked at all these other companies, and they're great and they're awesome. But if you think about it, most companies are trying to do something when it comes to, let's say, profits, or let me sell units, or let me get you to watch more of my videos, where Airbnb has a mission to say, we want to bring more strangers and together and make them friends. And that's a big undertaking. And for a company to say, we are doing this, and then when you point to, hey, you say you're going to do this, but over here is an example of you not doing it and them saying, oh, you know what? My bad. Let's go fix that. To me, that's huge as a company. Like very rarely do people do this, let alone a company. And then the other part of that is this is for the first time. You probably heard this or what a lot about diversity is I'm allowed to come to Airbnb as my full self. So no other position have I ever worked at where whatever is in my heart, whatever is bothering me, whatever is is stressing me as a black male in America, I don't have to leave it at the door when I come to work. I can express it. I can share it. I can be pissed about it. Everywhere else I've worked, if something bothered me, if there was a shooting, if something happened to my family, if something happened anywhere, as a black male and a mostly white male organization, I've had to like, okay, let me change my face. Let me change my walk. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me go in here and let me be who they think they hired. It's not my full self. You have to put the mask on, sort of. Exactly. Yeah. Getting back to what the last podcast talked about, like, I'm tired of the mask. But it was a good thing because I got support here. And that's a big thing. Like, I kind of preface people in saying, like, I don't want to be an evangelist and make it sound fake. But this is, like, honestly how I feel. Like, I have a full-hearted endearment to this company because of the leadership, my boss, my boss's boss, the CEO, the founders, the second in command. Like I've had conversations with all of them. And for an example, when the Black Lives Matter movement happened last summer, it hit most of our black families hard. My wife and I, and people were in tears at work, people are in tears at home. And it got to the point where you could not go around work without seeing anyone black without tears in their eyes. And it got to the point where that following weekend after that, I don't know, fifth, sixth shooting in a month, there were so many conversations online with other employees that it got to the point where the CEO actually called me on a Sunday and was like, hey, I need to learn about this. What's going on with this? And like, what should we do as a company? Who else should I talk to? And like, this is like the CEO of Airbnb calling me on my personal phone at home about this issue that's bothered. You know, it's this is something that would never happen in any other business that I've worked at, any other organization. But, you know, I have such high respect for someone who's like, I can't make a judgment until I know the problem. Let me talk to this person. Who else can I talk to? So for me, Airbnb is this next level environment to work at because I'm honored and I'm looked at as a person first and not just like a black male designer. So not to, I want to bring it back to your question. It's almost unworldly to work here for me specifically. Now, other people won't tell you the same thing, but for me, it's a big change to be able to be my full self. Like I can walk in here with a pick in my hair. I can walk in here with a t-shirt <laughs> with a little cage. I'm serious. Like I've done that. I come in here and I am me. Like I don't have to just wear the black stuff that they think black guys wear. I don't have to dress a certain way, walk a certain way, talk a certain way. I am myself here. And I never felt so comfortable to be me where I'm like, this is like, it's all gravy. Like I've been doing this such a long time. I've been working with no one who looked like me until the last five, five years. I've had to hold my tongue. I've had to not share this. And here I'm just like, it's like my second home almost. So it's for me, these days at Airbnb, these are like the greatest three and a half years of my working career because I can fully express myself. And that's never happened before. I just got choked up a little when you said you could come to work with a pick in your hair. It's a beautiful <laughs> thing. It's a beautiful thing. 
I'm dead serious. That is wow. I mean, and, and you know, when you, you talk about the, the workplace culture like that, I know that Airbnb came under fire last year because users were talking about, you know, they were experiencing bias and discrimination from renters that use the system. And Airbnb really, you know, they not only own the issue, but they, you know, rose to tackle it head on. And it sounds like that is a real extension of the workplace culture, you know, kind of pushing outward so people can see that. Yeah, to me, it all ties back to their mission. I mean, their culture here is about, a, it's a moral culture. It's not like a, we're just going to worry about what our numbers look like. So I love it because of that. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, I remember even seeing the uh, the Airbnb Super Bowl ad. And everything. Me too. And I didn't even know that was coming. I was like, wait a minute. I work with him. I know her. I know. I was like, that was awesome. Oh, those were employees. Yeah, most of them. I think 90% of them were employees. Wow. It was oh, awesome nice. to see their face that big on the screen. Nice. Wow. It sounds like Airbnb is kind of a an anomaly from companies that you hear about in the Valley in terms of workplace culture. Uh, let me clarify. It is for me. Now, you might talk to someone else who might say, you know what? It's just like a paycheck. And it, it, it could be that for someone, whether they're black, white, Spanish, whatever. But mm-hmm. for me, it's a huge turning point. Like, that's why I preface people like, you know what? I don't want to oversell something because your experience might not be the same as my experience, but I've been doing this for 25 years and I've been working in some places where it's like, I got to do this because I got to pay rent or I got to pay for gas or I got to buy groceries and I got to come back here. I can't tell them that that was racist. I can't tell them that that was bias. So I had to do some things. I'm at a point where I don't have to do that, but now I can be my full self. So for me, Airbnb is just... I don't know. I don't want it to sound fake or like I'm trying to get recruit people. I'm not trying to do any of that. I'm just trying to tell you straight up that this is for me. I'm in a really, really, really good place right now. So my hat goes off to you. But my pick comes out of my hair for you. (laughs) (laughs) Personally, I feel like that is the dream place to be for any employee where they feel like they can show up to work as their full self, you know, black, white, whatever. I know for us, for, for black men, for people of color, really in general. But, you know, that's a hard goal to attain and to have that in your career and have that level of of security and support from your workplace is amazing it is it is so you mentioned you've been doing design for 25 years how'd you get started (laughs) so long 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 story short i've been drawing since i was three years old okay always drawing in notebooks always drawing in sketch pads when i was in fifth grade my dad got me into some college class and all the students voted to kick me out because I was drawing better than them. So I was like, all right, whatever. (laughs) And then I got in high school. I was a C student. I just wasn't focused. We moved around a lot. I had a really up and down childhood. So, you know, I've been to many different schools, many different high schools. And then senior year, I picked up a book in a guidance counselor's office. And I noticed that there was something called transportation design. And I was like, wait, you can make money designing cars. I love cars and I draw, but this is like senior year in high school. So I wasn't prepared. I couldn't afford college. I didn't have the grades, but I all of a sudden I had a dream. So from there, I had an art teacher who kind of started me on my path. This is like 1987. And I had a Amiga computer that she let me draw on. And that started me on computer graphics. I graduated high school in 87, um, moved around, moved around, left Jersey, went to Philly. In Philly, I got a job in a warehouse where they were making patches for mechanics and they had an art department with all these Mac LCs. And I just walked by one day and said, hey, I used to do it in high school. Can I try it? And they're like, we'll give you a shot. And that was my very first job, 1991 in Philadelphia, doing production work on badges for silk screened patches for mechanics. And then from there, I just taught myself Illustrator, Freehand, Photoshop, Quark, PageMaker, and I've been doing it ever since. I taught myself HTML. I taught myself this. So from that first job in 92, I just had to, I didn't have a college degree. I didn't have a formal training, but I just jumped on the job, learned everything about it. And I had to teach myself when the new things came out that I became so good at that. I started teaching other employees So then I started writing curriculum and even facilitating, like the new Photoshop came out. Let me do a class on Photoshop 101. Let me teach some people how to do Quark. And then from that, I just started doing computer graphics, desktop publishing. You do the work at Kinko's, you do work here, do that. And that brought me all the way to California, working for Apple, then Netflix, then Airbnb. So it's been a wild, crazy road. I've 
done prepress, desktop publishing. I've done web development. I've done uh, animation. I've done multimedia. Just at first, it was all just to pay the bills and keep going. But then it turned into a career. And here I am 25 years later. Wow. That is so inspiring to hear as someone who is also self-taught. Because, I mean, right around the time that you were, were learning this, I mean, there was no curriculum about this stuff. There were no nope. books about this stuff. So you had to be self-taught. Yeah. Man, freehand, you took it back. That's... Oh, Aldous freehand. Let me take Aldous it back. freehand. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. Let me take it back. Corel draw. Okay. Okay. I remember, well, I know Aldous freehand was, I think when I started using it, it was Macromedia freehand, yep. and then it became Adobe freehand, and then they, yep. I think it they discontinued it, but wow. Way back. So having that perspective of design from being self-taught to now and seeing how the design industry has changed and things, how do you think being self-taught has given you an advantage in your career? For me, it's given me a different way of looking at problems because I think for me, and I could be completely wrong, but for me, being self-taught, I think I have a more authentic view of what design is because the definition of design to me, and I'm not talking about Webster's and what people think in the conferences, but to me, design is problem solving. Mm -hmm. You're solving a problem. You can use aesthetics, you can use code, you can use pixels, you can use binary code. But to me, design is solving a problem. So when you're talking about how nice this looks or what the color shades are or what this is or how it feels, I think that's a, a means to an end. If you're not solving a problem, you're not designing. So that's also some of the problems where I have calling myself a designer because I consider myself a problem solver first. Mm -hmm. I consider myself trying to figure out what is it that's needed here in a situation or what does this person want from me or what does the business need from me or how can I help get to this point? And to me, all of that is problem solving. My title is designer or I'm paid as a designer or whatever all that is. But for me, I think not having that art school four year this or that whole I'll call it a classical design education where I think a lot of, and I might get in trouble here, but I think a lot of designers are, baby's the wrong word, but I think they buy into that, that pretentious part that like, oh, wait, I'm a designer. I just graduated Art Institute or I graduated, you know, Parsons or I graduated so-and-so. Mm -hmm. And now what I say, what I was taught and what this, this is the Bible and you know, if I see it on Behance and I see it on this and I see it on this other thing, oh, that must be it. That must be it. And it's like, no, you can say what you feel. You can say, you know what? Everybody looks like iOS. Why am I going to do the same thing? Yeah. I need to be, say, like, does, does me copying what I see on Behance solve the problem? If not, then don't do it. And also, I mean, you know, the design industry kind of validates that a little bit, too. At least it, I feel like it is now as you start seeing more educational programs and things like that. But there seems to be this preference more towards, and maybe it's just what I've seen here in Atlanta, but there seems to be this preference more towards people that have had this kind of strict design education, as opposed to those who have had to learn it, you know, on our own. Like we had to yeah. learn it. We had to reverse engineer websites and figure out right. how all right. this stuff, you know, kind of worked. I know right. when I was, when I was learning HTML in like the mid 90s. So I grew up in the in the deep south in Selma, Alabama. That's where I'm from. And we didn't have a bookstore. The nearest bookstore was 50 miles away in Montgomery. So the most that we had was like, I think we had stuff at, at the public library, mm -hmm. but it was horribly outdated. There was only right. one book. The book was maybe about 50 pages and somebody always had it checked out. It's like, right. so, so I had to, <laughs> I had to like reverse engineer learning, like teaching myself, oh, this is how right. HTML works. And then I think, I don't know, maybe it was, I was maybe like 15 or 16. And, and we took a trip to Montgomery and I got to go to a bookstore. It's like a books a million and got like this big, thick thousand page HTML, yep. like this orange, which I still have yep. <laughs> big orange HTML book. And I mean, I devoured that yep. thing, like learning it. So, but yeah, I think, you know, not being locked into what you know, some design schools and design curriculums may teach you about design, gives you the freedom to break out of whatever sort of design paradigm there might be to think about problems in unique, different, creative and varied ways. I love traditional trained designers. I'm not saying anything bad about them, but for me, I see a different perspective coming at a problem like what you just said about 
you didn't have access to this. So you went and figured out another path. And then when you had an obstacle there, you found another path. And then what that does, you now learn from yourself. You don't even know that you're doing it, but you're setting up how you learn. You're like, okay, if I can't figure out this way, let me go solve the problem on this other way. And like that is what design is. I have to go research. I have to go find out the problem. If I can't do this traditional way, I'm going to make my own path. And like, that's to me so valuable in, in, in it, even an employee or even a coworker or someone I'm going to partner with. Cause you know, you bring someone in for an interview and you say, okay, I see your, I see your portfolio. I see where you worked before. I see what you've done. I see you where you went to school, but put all that aside. Tell me about you. How do you work? If, if I have this issue over here with that piece in your portfolio, tell me why that was a challenge or tell me what problem that solved. Like I want to hear how you attack a problem. Everybody can have a great portfolio. Everybody can go to a school and put on their resume and I've worked here, I work there. But I want to know that when it comes to like 5.15 on a Friday and something goes wrong, that I can say, you know what, I'm sitting shoulder to shoulder with this person and they're going to sit with me and we're going to knock this out regardless of what time it is, regardless of what has to get done. Because that's the mindset for me specifically that I am endeared to because there's times where it's like all the other rules get through the window. Here's the job. It got done. And I, I attribute a lot of that to me growing up in Jersey. I attribute that to a lot of my work in Philadelphia because I'm going to say something's going to piss a lot of people off, but there's a different work that on the East Coast than the West Coast. Okay. There is a faster pace. There is a get it or what that doesn't always exist on the California coast. So when I first moved out here and things had to get done, people were like, oh, wait. It's Friday. I got to go. I'm like, wait a minute. This got to get done. And they're like, Mm-mm, I'm going surfing. I'm going snowboarding. I'm going whatever, whatever. It's the weekend. And like, I used to work in this agency in Philadelphia where it's like, you know, sometimes I don't come out of here until two o'clock in the morning or sometimes, hey, I got to call. Hey, look, I might be sleeping here under my desk. So it was like there's a different work ethic of making sure that something is done, done correctly and done thoroughly versus, well, that's not in my contract. Or that's not what I'm paid for, which is like that doesn't help get the project out. <laughs> that is, I mean, that is a controversial statement to make. Um, I'm not going to agree I'm or disagree. I'm not knocking anybody's house. <laughs> All I'm saying is in my experience, it's faster. It's, I don't know. It's faster on the East coast than it is in California. Now I don't know about the South. I don't know about the Midwest cause I haven't worked there. All I know is Jersey, Philly and Bay area. And to me, it's so much faster and just like, it's got to get done on the East coast versus the West coast. That's all I'm saying. I don't mean to piss anybody off. That's all I'm saying. I know what you're talking about. I mean, I'm from the South and I feel like I've got a certain, I know the South kind of will get that reputation about, you know, being lazy and being slow, but it's a lot of hardworking people in the South. I mean, it's a lot of folks that have a super strong work ethic. I think I have a super strong work ethic. And sometimes I've heard that stereotype of like the, you know, the, I don't want to necessarily say the California designer, but I guess because, the weather and the way of life may not be as fast paced. It's a different kind of thing. But I mean, you've been in the business for a while. I know you're speaking from your experience. Yeah. So that's all. That's all that is my experience, my opinion. So yeah, that's all. <laughs> which is, is perfectly okay. That's fine. Don't shut off the podcast. Just say it, send your hate mail to a ream. <laughs> okay. So we come from this era where a lot of what we had to learn had was self-taught. Now, if you're a designer, if you want to, you know, even just get involved with learning about it, there are so many resources and options and degree programs and boot camps and classes and websites and tutorials and all this kind of stuff. How do you think we can get the next generation interested and excited about design when they have all this stuff at their fingertips? I think we have to be honest that first off, if there's anyone who's younger, anyone listening to this or knows someone who wants to be a designer, help them research what type of designer. Because being a designer is just like saying, oh, I'm going to be an athlete when I grow up. Well, what do you want to do? You want to do basketball? You want to be a point guard? Because that's very different than just saying I want to be an athlete. So I think helping someone define what they mean. So for me, in high school, I wanted to be a, a transportation designer. I wanted to design cars. I still do. And there's so many obstacles, I mean, not obstacles, there's so many opportunities and resources and, and, and networks to connect into. So I would say first, help them define what they want to do. Find out what they're good at. Do they draw? Are they good visually? Are they aesthetic? Are they good with numbers? Are they good with code? And then just help them 
find out what positions are available in what they want to do. And then I would say just support them in making connections with people who, if you do know somebody in those circles who work in that field, make some connections. Um, get them into like, maybe they get a LinkedIn, maybe they get a Facebook, maybe they get a whatever it might be. But I think them knowing or knowing of people who do the job they want to do is a great way for them to just get their foot in the door and say, okay, I want to do my own podcast about design, just like Maurice does. Who do I know that might know him? Or who do I know who might know someone who might know him? Because mm-hmm. I can find out how he did it and I can learn from his experience and I can say, you know what, I'm going to do my own podcast. And maybe one day mine will be as big as it. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I don't think just saying, oh, you can do it is enough. I think you have to be a support system, which is a big difference from a lot of the efforts I see that are, a lot of people are doing the same thing where it's like, we got to get more black and brown people coding. We got to get a lot more black and brown people in STEM. And I'm all for that. But I think that tech is much bigger than just STEM and programming. It also is design and marketing and finance. And I think one of the things we need to do is start pairing the youth with their personality and skill sets with a job description and not so much about what school they go to, not so much what their diploma says, not so much what their degree says. Because, you know, you can say I graduated from this school with in this major. But if you have a personality that fits and you are, are are meticulous with detail and you're a troubleshooter and you're this and you're this, you would fit perfectly in these three jobs, regardless of what your degree says, regardless of what the job description says. I think it's it's getting people more granular in their quest for what do you want to do as a as a job? Because I think also when you and I were doing all this back in the nineties, you know, it was like you were either graphic designer or you were web designer. Yep. But now if you look at it, it's web designer, web developer. It's web graphics manager. It's web producer. It's content developer. That's just web. Then we're talking social. You can be a social designer and assets and writer. Then you can talk about graphic. Graphic is broken into there's print, there's text, there's TV, there's film. Then you're talking about product, which is blowing up, which is you can be a UX designer. You can be a UI designer. You can be a UX slash UI designer. You can be a production designer. You can be an, you know, it's just like, it's so specialized now that if anyone says, I want to do this, they have multiple things to pursue. You just got to find what fits best for them. I remember when I was in, I think maybe like 10th or 11th grade. I don't know if they still do this now, but they had this test that we took. It was, uh, what was it called? Like the NEDT or something like that. It was like a multiple choice kind of test. And you you took the test and, you know, they, you know, do the results and everything. It was a standardized test. But you would find out the fields that you were best suited for right? once you took the test. So I guess, you know, it would kind of help weed out, you know, <laughs> am I going to be a fine artist or am I going to be a janitor? Like what like what right. is my what am I best suited for? And I think when I took it, it said I was best suited for either a career in fine arts or management. I think management was like my, I think management was like my top one. And then fine arts was like the second one. And I've always taken different little, you know, analytic or psychological kind of tests to try to get a better idea of myself. Like I'll take a Myers-Briggs test or an Enneagram test or even uh, StrengthsFinder is one that's been really helpful to me in my career. And it will help me kind of get some insight into myself as to the things that I know that I'm good at, the things that I should focus on. And I feel like that's been really instrumental for me to not go down the paths that I know wouldn't work for me because it won't fall into what I want to do and the kind of person that I am. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because those tests are valuable. They're not like the Bible. So like if it says you're a connector, that's not the only thing you are because your personality traits will change over time. Yeah. But what I love about what you said was I had a – the reason I'm at Airbnb is because of me focusing on me and what I'm good at. So an example is – I'm production designer, I'm production designer. And then when I go to a certain company, everyone is called experience designer. So my title change and no matter what you do, your experience design. So when I was no longer at that company, I started sending my resume around. I changed it. I'm looking for experience design this, experience design that. I got some interviews, I got some calls, but I never had a second interview. And it's like, what's going on? No one's offered me a job. And I'm this is like month three, month four, and like, you know, I got bills to pay. And yeah. I'm concerned about why am I not getting what's disconnected here? And I look back and I look at my experience and I'm like, well, I'm not really an experienced designer. What they're looking for is a skill set that that's not my strength. Like I'm not the, 
I don't design UI. I don't design flows. I'm the details guy. I'm the production design person. So I reworked my resume and I was like, you know what? I'm looking for production design. That's who I am. That's what I do. And that's where I was on LinkedIn. And like there was this, this job came up, production designer needed Airbnb. And that's how I walked in here because I didn't know Airbnb before I submitted a resume. But because I was true to who I was in my experience, that led me to the correct job for me, which I'm grateful for because I'm actually glad I never got any of those other callbacks because I'd be in a position that wouldn't set me up for success. Mm-hmm. I'd be doing something and struggling and then probably get fired for something where this isn't what I should be doing because that's not my strength. My strength is over here and now I'm over there and I'm doing it. So I'm glad you said that because those personality tests can help you see insight into how you can stay in your lane, actually. Because you know, if you're a web developer and you love code, you shouldn't try to work with typography and type and posters because like it's not that you can't do it but do the stuff that you would love to do if they said you know what we're going to take care of your bills what would you do for free yeah that's kind of your lane like i love doing production design i love the challenge i love finding the things that are off i love getting everything aligned i love all the numbers being around it i love having i got like 20 moleskins with nothing but notes and scratches i mean i, I got out my own moleskin library i love <laughs> that that i just love that part so like if it wasn't for the, the the bills and the rent and everything, I'd just do this just because I love doing it. And I think people need to, especially as black designers, find that thing that like you, I love doing this. Not like I, I mean, some people have to do what they have to do. You know, you have a family, you have bills, whatever. You have to pay those bills. But if you can move towards something where you're like, I just love what I'm doing. You know, if I didn't have to eat and breathe or if I didn't have to go pay bills or I didn't have to go do this. I just love these colors. I love when I draw. Or I love when I put a book together and it's put on the shelf. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. find that thing where it's like you're like, mm, I'm really proud of that. Not the eagle thing, not the whatever, but like I just wish more people would just find that love and that peace for the work. Because not the work where you can say like I'm an Airbnb employee or I'm an Apple employee where you say, you know what? I do a good job. I am a good designer. I am a good person who does good work with my hands, my mind, my whatever. But it's such a great feeling when you move over from doing a job to being in a career. Mm. It's a slight shift. It's mostly a shift in mindset. But when you're in a career and you're like, how do I think of this in a broader sense? Like, I'm not looking at my 40 hour a week, day to day. I want to get a raise every six months. You're looking at how can I move my industry possibly? How can I take these tools and research? And maybe I'll write a blog about here's a technique to do so and so. Now you're contributing to the industry. You're becoming an industry leader. You're becoming a well-known name, not for the eagle part of it, because you're doing the work and now you're building a body of work. People rely on you and say, you know what? If Maurice says that, this is a technique to get a better producing podcast or Marie says this is a better way to get your SEOs up in your website or Marie said this, I believe him because I've been following him for like three, four years and everything he said was golden. Like that's what you want to get back to the community of design. You want to be that person that's like, not because I'm the best designer and you know my name from the commercials or from the award ceremony, but because you know what, when I roll my sleeves up and I'm doing all this work. When I get stuck, I can always count on Maurice or whoever the name is you want to insert to give me a tip or point me in the right direction or be a resource so that I can get over that little hump and have my little win and have my other win. It's just, I just wish more people enjoy their work because I mean, we're not here forever. Yeah. And you might as well enjoy the work, enjoy the life. I mean, if you need to stop, take a breath and be like, you know what? It's not that bad. And then keep on going. What's been the most useful advice that you've gotten in your career? Huh. I don't know. Because the one thing that I've always wished I had in my career was advice. Because I've never had mentors. It's always been, I mean, since 92, I can count on one hand the number of people I've worked. This is up until maybe up until the last five years. For For the first 20 years of my career, I've been the only black man in the room or I've been one of two black people. So I've almost never worked with anyone that looks like me. So I've almost never connected with coworkers as well. So I've never, that also means I've almost never had a mentor. I've never had someone who's been like, you do good work and make sure you take care of yourself or do this or this. So I've, most of the advice I find is out of my field because I have to find inspiration where I find it. I've never had that opportunity to like have someone in my field to just be like, let me take you on under my wing and just like help guide you through this because it's been a lot of struggle 
this industry and getting through this and getting fired here, getting laid off here, getting mm-hmm. whatever. So, huh, I don't know if I can answer that. I don't think I've got any, I can't think of any advice I've gotten in my career. Well, I mean, I think that's, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, you've been in those situations where it was hard to relate to your coworkers. It was hard to kind of get to know them on the level where they could be mentors. So I think that is actually very common. I would say, geez, maybe 90% of the people who I've had on the show, generally when I ask them something about mentors, they haven't had any. They haven't had anyone that's been able to help them out. And that's either been, you know, for a number of different factors. But I think the main factor is similar to what you said. They didn't have anyone there that was kind of looking out for them. They just sort of, they showed up. They showed up to get a check. It was a job. It wasn't a career. So that's an opportunity right there. Maurice could be the person who takes all these people who don't have mentors. We can all turn around and be the mentors for those coming up. Hey, I like that. That's a good idea. Yeah. (laughs) And you be the channel for that. It'd be nice to do a mentor program and say, you know what? I had 170 something interviews. 90% of them didn't have mentors, but now they're going to say, we're going to have a forum. Maybe it's a conference, maybe it's a meeting, whatever it is. But we say, you know what? We didn't have anyone to guide us. But now those of you going to school, coming out of school, we're going to be your mentors. Come talk to us. Come ask us. So that would be an awesome thing. I'd love to be part of that. Okay. I mean, we have a, a Slack community that's got, I think, a little over 300 people in it. But I don't know if I've ever looked at that as a, a mentorship thing. It's always just kind of been places where we're, we're hanging out. We talk about different subjects. Gotcha. We've got a you know design channel. We've got a tech channel. We have a right. pop culture channel, et cetera. But that's a good idea. I've have to, I might have to steal that idea. That's really It's good. yours. Take it, man. You got the forum. You got all of us listening. You got all these ears. You got all these imprints. Just go ahead and do it. Mentorship. And just add me to your Slack channel. We'll talk more. Okay. So, I mean, because you didn't have those people, you know, throughout your career that have helped you out, what kept you motivated and inspired? Like, what kept you going? Well, one major thing was my wife and my daughters because – I didn't flip over into having a career until really recently because for me, it's been almost always a job. You know, for me, I've been able to provide for my family by doing computer graphics. And one of the reasons why I love computer graphics because it got my family to where my family is today. So my motivation has been I got to pay the bills. I got to pay the mortgage. I'm doing it and I'm doing it with a skill that I have that is part of me. Like the the computer graphics, the art, the Photoshop, the painting, the compositing, like that's all something that I've been doing since since high school. And now I get paid to do it. So for me, it was it was not as much as a job. I mean, because I've worked in bakeries, I've worked in gas stations. Like I know how to work for little money per hour yeah. and pay bills. But for me, it's been a luxury to move over into something where I had a natural love for. So mm-hmm. my inspiration was always providing my family. And then as my girls got older and, you know, college started becoming in the, in the picture and my wife on her career, my motivation started changing to saying, like, I've been doing this for a long, long time. And I've been doing a lot of struggling. I've been a lot of just me, no mentorship. And now it's time for me to turn it around. So, like, now my, my motivation now is as many young people, and I don't just mean people out of college. I mean high schoolers and middle schoolers. Like if, if you know someone who's a high school or middle school, listen to this podcast, let them listen to this. But I want to make sure that anyone who has a desire to do anything in design that looks like me or is a shade darker than me or lighter than me and I can help, I want to be that person. That's my full motivation, motivation now. So I'm also – championing like outreach here at Airbnb. I'm trying to outreach in the community. I'm trying to outreach to other people who know me or work with me because, you know, I don't want to just do design, production design, do very well at it. And then like, you know what, I'm going to retire and I'm done. Like, there's no reason why I can't just say, hey, when I was in high school, just like you, I wanted to do this. Instead of you taking 25 years to do it, let's get you to my point in two and a half years. You know what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. that's my motivation now is to make sure that their path from high school to Efficiency in the industry is years and not decades. When I asked you, you know, earlier, and for people that are listening, they kind of know this. I ask, you know, the Oprah question, which is kind of what what do I want people to kind of take away from, you know, the interview when they're done with it? And there was a quote that you gave me that your wife uh, actually tells you, which is if we're trying to be better, better is hard. This is going to be hard. And, you know, kind of speaking on what you're saying, you know, you have been in those situations where, You've had to just take those jobs 
to get by. You know, I've been in those situations too. I've been a telemarketer. I've been a short order cook. I've, I've sold tickets at the I box know. office. I've done all that just to get. I sold vacuum cleaners. I sold water filtration. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I had to do jobs. Yeah, you I get sold to the shoes. <laughs> you get to that point where you have to. You know, they're um, the way my mom used to to kind of put it to me was sometimes you have to. What was it? She said sometimes you have to do the things you don't want to do to get to the place where you want to be or something like that, yeah, something to that yeah. effect. But yep. it, it's analogous kind of, I think what your, your wife's quote is about, you know, if you're going to be better, it's going to be work. It's not going to be an easy thing, but because you've walked that road, now you can pay it forward to the next generation. So they don't have to do that. Exactly. Is there anything that you regret not doing with your career? When you look back at, at the 25 years of work that you've done to where you are now, do you ever look back and think, I wish I would have done this or I, I should have done something else in my career and what I'm doing. Not so much, but what I, and I only have one regret is that I never got to pursue automotive design because I still love it. I've never gone to the art center college of design in Southern California and learned how to do the clay and the modeling. It's just a dream of mine that I've never fulfilled. So that's, I mean, but everything else, Every hardship, everything I've ever done for these last 25 years, it's got me to be the person I am that can think the way I can think, that can manage the way I can manage, that can enjoy what I'm enjoying. So the only regret is that I didn't go that additional path because I don't think I'd be who I am or where I am if I went that way instead of this way. But I don't really do regrets because I kind of have a a sickening, optimistic view of like – a lot of things that happened to me got me to where I am. And I really, really, really love where I am. Like personally, professionally, like I, I, I can't complain. I just love where I am. And I don't regret anything. I just have, I guess you can say instead of a regret, it's more of a bucket list. Let's put it that way. Okay. Is that still on your bucket list to do that? Yeah. I just don't know how and when. <laughs> have you, now, now there's a, you mentioned Netflix. There's a new design series on netflix i don't know if you've heard of it it's called abstract the art of design have you heard of that no i haven't so it just came out in february there's and you're gonna love this there's one black designer on the series his name is ralph giles he is an automotive designer oh so <laughs> when you go home look it up on netflix it's episode five check it out all right I I will. enjoy it <laughs> And like speaking of that, that's one of my heroes was the guy who just left GM was like that black accomplished designer. I'm like, damn, like I really, really, really look up to him because, I mean, he was running global GM. He brought the swag back to Cadillac. Like he just does so many things. And it's just great to see a black man do something of that scale when you don't usually see that. Yeah, the guy you're talking about, it's um, um wait, don't tell me I know his name. It's on the tip of my tongue. Ed Welburn. From yep. from GM, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, he was the the vice president of of global design for a long time, and yeah, he did. He brought back the Cadillac brand and everything. Yeah. Now you mentioned you have daughters. Are they kind of following in your footsteps and wanting to get involved in design? No. So <laughs> <laughs> it's my fault because I mean, when they were younger, it was a job to me. So it wasn't like me trying to pass down the family business. It was like, you know, daddy's home, how was school, that type of thing. So I didn't really share that with them. Yeah. When they got older, like the high school years, you know, all kids are um, artistic. So, you know, they were drawing stuff like that. Teach them, yeah, here's Photoshop. Let me know when you want to learn. I don't want to push it on them. It never really stuck. So, but my middle daughter is pursuing like art therapy and she does some artistic stuff. She's, she's very accomplished, mostly fine art, not really digital, not written. No one's going into production. I already know that, but <laughs> they're their own women. So they're seeking their own path. Art therapy. That's interesting. I like that. Yeah. Who or what brings out the best in you? Oh, my wife. Your wife? All the time, every time, just so I can bring complete credit of her quote. Her name is Marcella Anthony, phenomenal community outreach manager at Stanford University. She brings the best out of me because she challenges me. She calls me on my shit. She calls me, hey, you've done this well, or you need to work on that, or this I didn't like. I mean, no one in my life has ever given me the real, and she does on a daily basis. And sometimes, as much as I don't want to hear it, it works for me and it helps because I grow from that. You know, if I didn't have that in my life, 
I might just be coasting through. But I mean, everything is so much richer when you got someone that's like keeping you on task and, and saying like, hey, we'll get through this or I need you to not do this anymore or I need you to start doing this or whatever it is. So yeah. she's she's the one. Where do you see yourself in like the next five years or so? What do you think you'll be doing? <laughs> I'm laughing because and I'm going to brag here a little bit. OK. In five years, my wife and I should be on our property in Hawaii in the cabin we built. Oh, tell us I mean, more. Tell tell you more. Yeah, I'm gonna brag. You're not. Gonna, I'm gonna brag. So <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Another reason why I really, really love my life is because we got the opportunity to like just we can do some things we can never like. We got married almost 25 years ago, back in '93, and wow. we scrapped so. I mean, we were taking pennies for getting gas. There were times we had hot dogs for dinner. I mean, we struggled for a long, long time. Uh-huh. And now that we're out here, we're at a point where it's like. You know, a couple of years ago, we went and we brought three acres in Hawaii. We've been going back every six months or so and building a cabin from the ground up with our daughters. And we have a point where it's like, you know, we have a game plan of in five years, that's going to be our address. We're going to live in Hawaii. If I'm still at Airbnb, I hope I telecommute. I hope she does whatever she does telecommute. But it's for me, life is beautiful because we both grew up, she grew up in Philly, I grew up in New Jersey. We both lived in the city. We both done the scrap. We both done the, the transportation. We both done the, the job hustle. We both raised the kids. We, we did all these things. It's like, you know what? If everything goes left and, you know, I get fired here or earthquake hits or something happens, we always got this to jump to. And this is like our plan B, C, and D. It's like just life is we're going we're gonna to step take a step back and unplug and if we need to be agricultural farmers or we make soap from scratch or i do a art in residence whatever it is i'm fine with that because we've done so much i've worked so long our girls are finishing college they're grown women it's like i don't have to keep working for another 15 20 years if i can just work what i'm doing now in a point where in five years i have the option to say i'm going to keep working in this field or I'm not working in this field. Like that's a beautiful place to get to. And I would love other people to say, my plan is that when I hit 40, when I hit 45, I can choose not to do what I'm doing now, or I can choose not to work anymore or take time off. It's something that I haven't learned in my family because my family doesn't really have that mindset of, you know, it's like work, retire, die. And Mm. for me, it's like work, wait, let's enjoy some of this, slow down. Let's not even say the word retire. Let's just say transition. Let's just say, let's do something else for a while. But like, it's a huge thing to come from living in the city and going to school and going to work and paying bills and going and just doing that rat race to get into the point where you can say, you know what? Let's make a plan so that in five years, we don't have to do the rat race. We don't have to get a paycheck to survive. I don't want to go beyond surviving. I want to live. And we're getting closer to that. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. That is such a blessing. It is. It, wow. I mean, that's why I can't complain about anything because I'm in a position where I can say, you know what? If I decide to, I won't do this anymore. That's a beautiful place to be in. And I never, ever, ever, ever thought I'd be in this position. Uh, that actually was going <laughs> to segue into my next question. I was going to say, when you were, when you think back to that time when you were the, a teenager, just learning about transportation design, just getting that spark for thinking like, this is something I could like do for a living. Did you ever think that you would be at the stage that you're at now? No, because I didn't understand it. Like when I got the spark to be a transportation designer, I thought like I would work for like Mercedes or Porsche. I'd be in this big studio house or I might run the place. So like that's as far as my thinking got. It was like, I'd just be a great designer and I'd be like a Ream Studios and that's as far as I got. I never thought of the industry or the career part of it. I just thought of like, I'd be a great designer. I love cars. I'll design cars. But that's as far as I got. And it wasn't until uh, probably pretty recently, like maybe like five years ago, where I started looking at getting to the point where it's like, I can potentially one day just decide, you know what? I'm done. Yeah. Wow. Well, Areem, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? I'm on LinkedIn. And it's Areem, A-R-I-E-M, last name Anthony. I'm on Twitter, sporadically. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm on Facebook, sporadically. Um, but mostly, uh, most people reach me through uh, email. So either my Airbnb email, actually my personal email is Areem at me.com. First name um, at me.com. 
but I'm trying to do and be more vocal. I'm trying to share more things about outreach, share more things about my industry. I'm trying to bring more light to production design as an industry and not just a step to get to other positions. So I'm trying to make more noise there. That's how you found me on doing a tech talk at Adobe Max, a couple of podcasts you might have heard me on. So I'm just trying to bring more awareness to my field, but I'm always trying to tie this back into outreach because I think if more people understand this field and more people recognize, hey, this is something that I'm good at. Instead of me trying to put a round peg in this square hole, Mm -hmm. maybe I'll just find the right square for my piece. And I'm hoping that production design becomes that piece for a lot of people. So I'm just trying to evangelize the the industry and just bring more people to it or just more awareness to it, actually. Well, I think you're doing, I mean, an amazing job so far. And I definitely will invite you to to our Slack community and everything. You can talk to folks there and get to know them there. But man, Thank you, Areen, for so much for coming on the show. Like, Oh, thank you for having me. I mean, I really don't even know where to start. Sometimes I go into an interview, I don't really know what to expect. You know, like people will ask me, you know, how much research do you do or, or things like that. And it's like, you know, oftentimes I can do hour, two hour of research and you sit down and talk to the person. It's still about talking to them and getting to know them and getting them to, you know, open up and this kind of stuff. And I mean, so much of just what you shared about your story being self-taught and really kind of being this self-taught, self-made person that has built yourself up to this point where you are now and you've, you've got these plans with your wife to like be in Hawaii and everything. Like, man, this guy is is really doing it. You are really an inspiration. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for it. the kind words. Thank you for that. Thoughts of love are in. it for this week big thanks to areem anthony and thanks to you for listening you can find out more about areem and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com also thanks as always to our sponsors facebook design mailchimp hover and siteground facebook invests in design they care deeply about how their design team might do their best work and that manifests itself in a number of different ways such as showing how internal design critiques work at facebook sharing resources about VR and other cutting-edge tech, and by giving away great tools and resources like Origami Studio, popular device templates, and even diverse hands for mock-ups. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 15 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to grow their sales, recapture business, and make money in their sleep. Did you know that you can now make Facebook ads inside of MailChimp and connect them to your list? I was just at MailChimp's headquarters last week, got kind of a rundown on how to do that. It's actually pretty easy. So sign up for a free account today and you can give it a try for yourself. MailChimp, send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. With free private domain registration and your choice of domains across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there, how can you turn that down? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Since 2004, SiteGround has been empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, safer, faster websites without having to worry about hosting. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path and get 60% off on all hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. Subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps bump the show up in the rankings for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. 
Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Visit us at yepitslunch.com for all your design, strategy, and creative consulting needs. And if you like the work that we're doing here with Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives are really being told in their own words. So if you support us, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. Pledge level start at just $1 a month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.